Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Paul Kalkbrenner. We've had a fair number of artists swing by our Berlin office over the years, but never a bona fide famous person quite on the level of Paul. He's a platinum-selling producer with a vast major label deal, and at present, a new album that's number one in Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. He's also, of course, a movie star. In that way, Paul doesn't really fit the profile of an exchange subject. That being said, he's a former Berlin club kid and B-pitch control signee, and he couldn't really lump his music in with that of other stadium-sized dance acts. Over the course of our chat, I also found that Paul is a pretty normal and affable guy, trappings of fame aside. You can find our full archive of exchanges on resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. An exchange with Paul Kalkbrenner is up next. season yeah. it's the height of the summer uh, what is your summer looking like what are you up to i play a little less shows since i'm a first time daddy since this year and congratulations uh, thank you very much and so also for to have a, like a very very full summer my album is coming in august so it's kind of too late it was supposed to be a little bit earlier so now 2016 will be the big run so it's like down to 20 shows per summer nice big festivals all over europe and um, i'm much enjoying it so far sun is shining people are in a good mood have there been any shows so far that have been especially good or are there any that you're looking forward to the two french shows in solid days in paris and garo rock in the south of france where just by people and also by atmosphere, even with like Bengal fire, you know, the Bengalos, you know, from the football stadium, they're dangerous, but I like them. So they were the two best shows by far. It was also like 50,000 people in front of the stage. So good sound, everything perfect, nice weather, good food. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so there's Tomorrowland up to come and some others, but the uh, level is set high. Well, these, these big festival shows or stadium shows, arena shows, whatever, is this kind of the size of venue that you like to be playing? Is this what you feel works best for the kind of the kind of stuff that you're doing? It's working best for the stuff. It's also working best for me. I had one show what was different than all the others, like last weekend where I played on Solomon's the, at Destino, where people standing right in front of you. And that's, I'm not really used to that anymore. I'm also always like it was back in the club, so very afraid about my equipment. 
that no liquid gets in it and the show is over because just someone is just stupid. So it's actually much less stress to appear in front of 50,000 people because you go on your stage, there's your monitoring, it's all far away from those and you feel just for yourself. So it was back in the days, I was in the clubs, much more stress, you know, to arrive there with your live equipment, set it up beside the DJs. Hey, could you give me a little bit more space, man? <laughs> and do it, like plug it all together while the party is running. So yes, that is much more convenient for me now. Do you get phased by the, the big crowds anymore? I mean, playing in front of 50,000 people, does it really make you nervous or anything? No, not at all. Especially because it's so also kind of far away. You're not looking actually into one certain face looking at you weird. I mean, I played at the Rostock, Hansa Rostock. We like with Materia together, we saved the club and making like a benefits game there. And even though I played so many shows of in front of so many people, when the ball is running to you in front of 30,000 people, that's when the heart is uh, <laughs> moving down into the trousers. Yeah, but when I play music, then not anymore. You've been playing this music now for well over a decade, two decades, really. Almost, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about like when you first had a sense that this music that you were playing sort of had a place in these kind of large venues. I mean, you started going out in what, 1992? Yeah, yeah, trying to get into the clubs with 15. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, techno was much more underground back then. It was, it was a much smaller yeah. scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you have any idea back then that it could work in no. a stadium no we actually made everything was like supposed to be the opposite you know not like the rock concert where 25,000 people looking exactly towards the stage where the guys are up to no like in bunker 1992 like several small rooms just with a fog and strobe didn't even see in which one of them the dj stands on the same level and doing now the same thing after like uh, 25 years shows me that obviously is the way things of life go you know when a certain size is achieved of something then things are changing so that the people are reacting exactly that way again i mean if i would have known back then i would have said oh no then i'm not doing it because it's not so cool and underground but from now on to see all things have to develop especially i have to change always to stay the same and yeah, but it has been a long way and I would have never thought that uh, it, it could happen to the techno because it was supposed to be in the small club. Yeah, you mentioned that that's, <laughs> that's the way that it was supposed yeah. to be. I mean, do you feel like what you're doing still is techno or because it, it has changed? I always changed... called it like that. Yeah. I, it's, I knew it was always my techno because also back then on the BP chairs with my music, it was never so easy for me, you know, before like it started to get bigger people called it neo-trans or whatever like what was not a very good term back then you know around the, when the new millennium came i don't know so there's not a stringent like uh, red line from 1992 to here it's also a lot of i don't know a lot of luck a lot of things who are unforeseeable and not in your hands you know to make that happen oh. take me back to yeah. that to that time yeah. i mean you would have been seeing this sort of classic Berlin techno scene. What were some of your early experiences with this music? It was the time when like rarely music was produced already in Germany. It was just Berlin, the city where those records from Detroit, Chicago, on Sheffield or Ghent were like played for the first time all together. And um, 
especially with this Berlin story, also this one part of the city, like freed youth, you know, letting out, like letting it all out. <laughs> that uh, now the new time is arriving. And that's how I also saw techno all, all those times, you know, something what is very happy for the future to come, you know, not afraid of it, like many people nowadays are, especially in the rich countries. No, no, it was always a forward thing and it just can get better. That was the, what is, was inside of that. And it was hard and aggressive music, for sure. <laughs> What were some of the clubs you were going to from 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 the early days? Uh, Bunker was my first one. Then also Walfisch, Exit at the Ahornblatt, Leipziger Straße. But also like crazy uh, like discotheque clubs like Linien in 1993. There was like a lot of DJs playing. And then, I don't know, WMF, all those who were there and closed. And not to forget Ewerk, what was the ruling one for all of us. Old Matrix, Casino. Yeah, things come and go. You're a big record collector during that time too. No. No? I only had 50 Deutschmarks Taschengeld from my parents and uh, per month. So that was like three records and that was it. So you were mostly experiencing then this then as a sort of a live medium, a, a DJ medium. When we were like 15, we, we I didn't know anything about like a techno life act. I, we wanted to DJ techno. But then, yeah, in the mid of that decade, we realized, ah, there are also some who are producing those records. And some of them even go, I don't know, what, with the studio or what, on stage. And uh, that's what I wanted to do quite early. You've cited Underground Resistance as being a pretty big early influence. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, we all had those UR hoodies. And, but it was more like, I mean... Music-wise, I don't know. I like the Seawolf and some others of them. The rest it was not really my music. It was more that it was called Underground Resistance. It had the UR hoodie. So an attitude thing more than they had a musical good, thing. They had pretty good branding, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Back then even. Yeah, from the US, they know how it's working. You sort of realized pretty early that you didn't want to DJ. Mm-hmm. You were mostly interested in playing your own music mm-hmm. live. I mean... This would have been a, a very difficult goal, maybe in these early years. You, there weren't you weren't able to bring a computer on stage. Um, yeah, but the other equipment, how I actually made my music with, was always like in a way exactly like I play live today. So I had my dot recorder where I pressed record, and then I had the mixer in front of me. Everything was just start, and I recorded it on the mixer. Actually, and often I had to, oh, the wrong track was muted at five minutes and 40 seconds. So I had to rewind it and do it again, sometimes 20 times. But this idea of playing live in a club, was yeah. that something that you had, you had seen? Or it was... was coming from the way of I was recording. I'd say, if I can record that song the way, I also can put myself in the club and do the same thing. What I'm re- doing there while the dot is recording, I can do this also in front of people. So that was the idea. <laughs> do you remember the first time that you did it in front of people? Oh, yes. In the new Matrix 1999. It was very nice. I think I got 100 Deutschmarks back then. <laughs> <laughs> was that big for, for a gig during that time or quite small? It was also quite small. I think good DJs in this city could get like from 500 Deutschmarks. So yeah, this is definitely early days. Yeah. I mean, how did it how did it go? What was the reception to that to that early gig and and did it feel like very good? I mean, I, th- this year also had my first record. It's actually when everything started. I had to make a little way around after school. I worked like 2-3 years f- as for editing at German TV and uh, film companies to earn the money to buy equipment with. What I did in 97 
or something and or 98 and then quite soon i had my first release and started to play live and since then it's actually the same thing all over and over mm-hmm. first records came out on b pitch yeah that was a very important so of- even i have to interrupt there were even some before on an even much un- more unknown label what I don't even remember the name right now, <laughs> but uh, there was like some you know early early works on some others, but quite soon on B. But you're right, right, and and they were a huge part of sort of your start of of sort of yes. that that early part of your career. I was there ten years. Yeah, tell me about that relationship in those early days. I mean, how did you guys hook up? Actually, there were like B-Pitch parties before the B-Pitch label was founded. So after the Ever closed, like there was somehow like a drop. There was not even a real Friday to go out anymore. Like there was 97. And then Ellen started to do those B-Pitch control parties at Glasshouse and other places. Heiko Lauks playing and some other people. And then uh, when nine, in 99, she founded the label, like starting up then really from 2000, I think with release number six or seven what was my first and yeah then it was like 10 years that way so i grew artistic in a way that i after 10 years realized a lot of things i like to do also stage wise and stuff are not fitting to this label anymore i in with this surroundings it's impossible for me to do some things i had in mind so, I mean, 10 years, let's see how, how long are people staying today, today's in companies or like even when it becomes to something entertainment like, you know, football players, maybe max two years in the club and then move on because everyone has his own agenda at the end. There's nothing bad to say. And we had like 10 very good years with Mozilla, Sasha, Kiki. This was always when we were on tour, like a, like a school uh, vacation. So... Everything had its time. <laughs> Would it be fair to say that sort of that progression in, in your own career over the course of, of those 10 years was sort of moving from doing a club thing yeah. to doing something that was bigger than a club thing? Yeah, yeah. Like I never liked this clientelism in this techno that it's obviously rather for less people if they're really cool understand it than for more people. I never understood this idea. People say, oh, I'd rather sell not so many records so that I'm, this is all half a lie and the other half is bullshit. So no one likes to sell less records than more from the stuff he put a lot of work and effort in. So, yeah, I grew out of that context, you can call it. That's what that, it is. Yeah, that also strikes me as kind of a, um, something that's that's maybe quite unique to, to Berlin, I mean, this is your, your hometown. Yeah. Berlin artists sort of tend to cherish how underground they are and they take great, great <laughs> pride in that. I mean, do you, yeah, you feel... Yeah, you can do that when you're young, you know, yeah. but, you know, life moves on. And once you have your child in your hand, you should ask yourself, it's cool to earn less, sell less, have less people liking your music. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're sort of maybe out of step in some ways with... Other yeah. parts of Berlin techno? Uh, in with techno in general, back in the days, wherever I flew, there were at least two, three other guys playing from Europe I know, and hello, and it was always very nice. Now I'm there in those dressing rooms where also other acts play on the festival. I have nothing to do with rock music or other stuff. I mean, that's how it goes. It's also maybe a little bit more fitting to the age I'm getting into. So then no regrets. Everything has its time. Mm-hmm. 
also over the course of that period, you became quite well known for something that wasn't just your records. I mean, you became known yeah. for, for this film, for, yeah, for, for the Berlin film. Calling. That is something that I think it's fair, it's fair to say most other dance music producers don't really have to contend with. Yeah, it's rare. I also, when I look back, it was so very dangerous for me to focus on that too much. People were asking me, hey, don't you play so much anymore? New album stuff? No, no, I'm making movie. What movie? And um, I had to take myself really out of the, you know, I was playing less and had actually not so much time to focus on music and no one knew what will become with this movie. I mean, we all got surprised, not just by the release, also then the year later, and even a year later, when still kept Berlin Calling, the guy from Berlin Calling. <laughs> it was also like 2009, hard for me to adapt this. It was still like, I played then almost every day of this year, still in the clubs with twice or twice the people outside waiting, not getting in because it was full already, but almost every day. So it took a year or one and a half so until we started with our concert tour and stuff. So it was crazy one, two years where it, there were like things who were not similar at the same time of size. So it was really hard at that moment until actually everything else like grew with the rest what has grown out. Well, you've said too that, or, or you've sort of taken, taken pains to point out that you are not Icarus. You're not the character from the movie. No. That's a character. You are yes. quite, quite different. And the longer the movie has passed on the shooting of it, the less I think I have to do with the guy. Mm -hmm. But you were also, I think, you had kind of quite a good sense of humor about this whole thing. I know in the, the 2010 documentary about the tour, yeah. at the arena show, you come out in the in the outfit. Yeah, that was a bet. It was a bet I lost <laughs> and so uh, with my manager, so I had to do it. Mm -hmm. So and it was like roughly taped together at the back because it's kind of open. You know? So <laughs> it was kind of windy under there. Mm -hmm. But you've had quite a good sense of humor about, about this whole thing. Yeah. I, I mean, were there ever moments when you said to yourself, man, I, I wish I hadn't done that. It's, it's hard for me to be taken. It's hard for me to, to separate myself from that movie role. I, I just want to be Paul Kalkbrenner. Oh, yeah, especially in that one and a half years. Hey, come on. I also did before music. Can that go off that one thing I did? But especially from now, when I look at it, just the experience like to work in a team what I'm actually incapable to do so, you know, music I could never do with somebody else in the studio. And also to prove it to myself that at least for eight weeks I can do it. To get up at five in the morning and no, pick up five in the morning and then shooting for 12 or 15 hours while I'm actually not anything in the morning hours. I was, um, I was proud after <laughs> just to be able to do that. Like, Well, I bet. I bet. I mean, I not that making music, being a live performer in clubs is not a lot of work, but working on a film, that's a whole lot of work. It's you know? the much more you have to be concentrated. You cannot live like you live on tour where you float a little bit, you know, from here to there and then you go on stage. That's always enough power to like pull yourself together for one and a half hours on stage. It's a completely different animal there. And that's why I don't want to do it again, because it is not my way of working. I was going to ask if you ever thought about jumping onto another film role. I mean, if they ask me in like 15 years when everything becomes bigger and maybe a public figure and stuff, and they ask me, hey, we have our new Bond movie. It's again <laughs> the German villain we need, and we would like to have you, and I'm older than, then I would do that. But beside that, I don't know. 
it is so long it's even much more than an album you know where you commit yourself like maybe for one or two years and working this is so much more everyone directors and production everything this idea but it's actually with preparation everything it's almost four to five years and this is a much much bigger commitment to anything and much less instant feedback you know especially someone who's used to very instant <laughs> feedback in front of people it's it's a hard business harsh and hard business sort of shortly after that whole um period you parted ways with b pitch and you started sort of your own yeah. label you started doing everything in-house mm -hmm. um tell me about that decision as i said the time wear up it was you know like schweini now he leaves the bayern goes to united we could have never thought about it but he needs to move on and because he wants to achieve something else than what could be offered where he is. And so I wanted to do it myself, actually. I wanted to have more control over my artistic output and the uh, places I appear and how it's happening. And it was exactly the right time to do so. There was enough interest of people. We were able to, you know, fill up like a concert tour. We were not sure if that would work. Hot tickets... And everything turned out fine. Was um, it more work than it would have been to, to stay with a label or, or to move to, to a different label? More work, a little bit less headache, you know. So I also, my manager now for also the last five, six years, he was also the booker before at Beepitch. So we actually kind of left together and he is a very trustful person. He's from the West. Even I would have never met him if the wall would not have come down. <laughs> but I, sometimes I'm remembering this. Oh, my God, you would have never met this guy. What then? And, um, yeah, it was great five years to do it by myself. You know, we make it very nice in Germany or Austria, Switzerland, also some other markets. And now I even moved on again. I have also fans in Lithuania or Peru, but I can't get busy in those markets. I can't even go there. I have not the time to. And so especially distribution-wise, I needed now a stronger partner. Mm -hmm. So the five years I did it with the PK Music were, let's say, the freest time of doing something. But it was also somehow it is limited what mm. you can do you know you can have a nice con deal with rough trade and distribute and distribute it to some markets and do here and there and continue playing your shows also the records can go maybe gold in germany but that's actually it and i need new things to happen going out on your own in doing your own sort of totally your own thing for five years do you feel like you grew as an artist during that time did, did you learn things about how you wanted to do things what you wanted to do especially learn what you especially not want to do and then you just don't do it that's the point and at the end you stand much clearer with your artistical output and all what it means and all the blah 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 around that is much more nearer much nearer to the core than you know on a label they're always this and that also with my booking William Morris I realized there's often also politics behind stuff what may not even have to do with me so the PK time was the time where we actually, as I named the songs of my album, <laughs> I didn't really care about anything. There's absolutely freedom. It doesn't matter how the, the tracks are named. If the song is good and runs in the radio, the, the guy from the radio isn't, even have to say it, you know, uh, this word. And um, yeah. You sort of hinted at this, that there were definitely some learning experiences yeah. along the way. I mean, can you tell me about some of those specifically? Yeah, I mean, at the, in the first place, it is like this, that um, 
we have a team where also then before I didn't have a light guy or video guy and all the stuff. But since it's uh, I do this alone my own, it's the same team I have with me. And it's also very important to me the continuity when it's you work with someone like trustfully together, then you should try everything what you can to maintain that. Sometimes you have to make some cuts in the team, you know, sometimes they have beef with each other. That's normal. But um, especially that you realize that it's a big luxury, you know, after the Berlin Calling, I left Beepitch 10 years, grown as an artist. And then you stand there and you can really, for the first time, like do whatever you want. And I said, oh, I don't want to announce the, the, the two first albums. I don't want to make pre-single or stuff. I just say it. Hey, it's out here, please. No one's forcing me to anything. Rolling Stone wrote that like in 2010, he must be the, the happiest artist <laughs> momentarily. No one forces him to anything. He just does what he wants. But also, as I can see for me that after five years now, it's not enough. And then you make a decision to sign a major label deal. And, and this is, it sounds like quite a big deal. Yeah. It was, when it came out, it was described as being worldwide. Priority release. And uh, <laughs> priority release. What, what, is, what does that mean? That means that I agree that I will do my best with doing the music. I can do whatever I want music-wise. It says it several times under light in the contract. And that Sony agrees with putting all the power they have to make it to a worldwide successful release. So that they also are forced to work for it and not just it. signing a major deal. That doesn't mean anything in the first place. That it, could be, it could mean anything good or could be anything bad. We had five years where I was alone. All the majors with their German dependances asking in our management. But again, it showed. My grandma always said the things come to the one who can wait. It's an old German saying. And... I could have done five years ago with much, much, much smaller numbers and no freedom. And now I waited long enough. We also found a very nice guy there, Wolfgang Boss. He's the vice president in National AR who understands what it's about. Also within Sony to place me as far as possible from everything EDM style, what also William Morris already five years ago just deeply understood. You know, it's just an artist with an own oeuvre. And so I'm... Very happy. It took a long time. It was also like negotiating like over a year. And, um, I can imagine these things don't come easily. But in terms of the, the negotiation, I mean, the fact that you can go to a label and say, look, for the last five years, I did this totally on my own oh, no. and, I, and I grew it from here to here. Yeah. That must put you in like much better yeah. position. So that I can say, I mean, within Germany, I don't know how I could do it even better with you, especially financially, because it was a very good... Uh, agreement with Rough Trade before so I actually earned everything from my record almost so that is different now but as I said there are so many the world is very big and so many countries who maybe have fans in it and I can't really go there bring it to them in a way so is that the biggest advantage you that would is say the distribution wise it's the biggest advantage plus the archive thing of course what is the archive thing now that I can go to the archive as the first and the first artist being granted that access and I can snoop around in their old stuff. I think they have it from 19, like mid 60s stems in good quality. Well, this is something that I picked up on listening to your record. I mean, there are a couple of pretty massive samples. In there. There's yeah. Luther Vandross, <laughs> yeah. there's a Jefferson Airplane, or is it Jefferson Starship at that point? No, it's Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are probably not records that are so easy to license. 
if you're not working with the, the label. Exactly. And that's uh, also there was then with the D train, there was so much dealing. I just hear it on the side. I don't know. That's why uh, a lot of people working there, you know, to make those things happen. Also that I don't have to name it their old way or featuring this and that. I wanted to because it's put in such a new context that I wanted to avoid that. Mm-hmm. When you were making the new album, which is called Seven. Yeah. Um, or did, Sieben. Or Sieben. Yeah, it's just the, how you call it? The the digit? Yeah, yeah, just the digit. Just the digit. Yeah, yeah. So, so Seven or Sieben. Uh, did you know that... Were you making this when when the deal had already gone through? Was this label specifically, was this record specifically for Colombia? No, like uh, the vocals came in later, and then it's like from heaven. I had like the first sketches are like from September two thousand thirteen, and I was like from the beginning very happy with it. There would have been also very nice plan B. Not having the vocals, doing it again on PK would be nice instrumental record here going gold in Germany. But as I said, not enough at one point and there was not even many vocals you know i there was not much time also then there was not many vocals i could listen through but the ones i had i don't know why they were fitting so on what i had made before already so they were like sent to me so i don't know it was stunning yeah because the tracks where the vocals are on they almost existed like they're now before i knew or heard what kind of vocals will come on it still inexplainable what what happened there mm-hmm. talking a little bit more about this this worldwide thing yeah um you know germany you've conquered germany you've done germany yeah. continuing to do it but but yeah europe has also been really huge for you europe as a whole so what are the parts of the world that that are sort of next up. I need to close the, the the big gap, like this discrepancy between I'm playing in in Belgium or France, like the big headline in front of all the bands flying over the channel to UK, where I'm very small, more on the bottom of the poster. And also in the US and Australia, very, very small as an artist. Like, this is, I want to close that gap somehow. Mm-hmm. So yes, it is for the English, Anglo-Saxon world. <laughs> this is what I need to become a little bit bigger like until now the, my music was not even really available in the US so it's time to make that step mm-hmm. how aware are you of sort of what's going on in the states lots of people talk about this EDM thing I mean yeah do you- but this is not what I, I can say I'm not a big EDM hater I mean I hate the music but I don't hate that also those artists maybe just by making Americans getting used to four to the floor bass drum also the chance is much higher that let's say Berlin artist, even from the underground, is maybe recognized also there one day. Mm-hmm. So they opening big gates with that. Yeah, I mean, the, the size of those shows, the, the way that, that those big EDM shows are produced is not so far removed from what you're doing, but the sound of your gig is going to be much different from yeah. Skrillex or Dead Mouse or something. Yeah, I mean, this is even even still okay. You know, there's much worse stuff, you know, going on. But I mean, everyone has two ears to listen. And if someone wants to put it into the same pot, then I just can say, hey, just listen to any albums of mine and then listen to any EDM album. You will hear what's different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and also 
that I now with this uh, contract or where before already an artist of a certain size makes me completely unafraid that they could be like do shit with me or like put me into a place where I don't want to be or where I not belong. This is all sorted out and um, I'm actually continuing what I'm doing just on a bigger level again. Mm-hmm. I think I've read before, uh, you know, that you've talked about how your your music is continually progressing. With this new album, I mean, how do you think you grew sort of between Guten Tag and this record? I mean, I have to say to Guten Tag and also to Ikevida, those two albums were made from my archive within three months, somehow in between big touring. So I don't even know anymore how I did that. This album has like almost taken up like more than one and a half years of working on it. So that was my major approach. I started to already play less in the end of 2013 to have a lot of time for this album, to put it away for a month, getting back to it. So I'm not so satisfied with the last two albums anymore. Also, what I said before, what I don't like about the techno, the clientelistic things that you still think are for the old fans, you maybe have to have like maybe three, four, five techno stompers on it. But that's just alibi, you know? I said, no, I do not need to have this on my album. I just want to do the songs I really want to do. And the motto was spring. It was actually supposed to become come out this spring. Now it's a little, little later. But this was the big motto for it. And let everything out. All melodies, everything, don't hesitate. Don't think people say you are neo-trancer and uh, you don't belong to techno anymore. I'm out of this anyway, you know. The fans I could lose on doing something too, let's say, commercial, those I have lost already a long time ago. So there will be always an interchange of fans. And if you want to be an artist who works in this job for longer than five or seven years, then this is what needs to happen to your fan base. Otherwise, you play like uh, uh, Lionel Richie in front of people who are as old as he is. And he's 66. He looks much better than them. But, <laughs> you know, that's the point. So fan base have to change if you want to do this longer than just for your youth. So it's not just about growing your fan base. I mean, that's obviously part of it. But it's also about kind of bringing new people into the fold and understanding that some people will probably leave as you get bigger. Of course, that is the normal way. It was already, when I was on Beepage, people telling me, hey, that's not cool anymore. That's not the underground shit. <laughs> or that you know Paul Kackburn and not Paul DB anymore. I'm very mad about that. <laughs> this I have heard even 15 years ago. So I'm um, not really, yeah, it's not touching me anymore. But back then it was always hard to lose one fan. <laughs> of course. Tell me a little bit about um, your studio process these days i mean how close is your studio to what you're working with in the in the live space it's the complete opposite my old way of producing is only on stage i like maintaining the way on stage playing live the way i recorded back then today that is ableton also that i use it from day one that's now almost 14 years and also with these one and a half years of making this album the skills i have with making music were at the end of the production again better than at the beginning so this is what it's about to become better and better and what you can do and make this road shorter from what you have in your head that is a nice song yeah now make it audible <laughs> to what other people also can listen to and um 
this is what actually my biggest approach is to when somebody talks about growing as an artist. Everything else is the, the outside thing as what it appears. But this that I got better and better. All my old records, when they say you were cooler back then, a lot of stuff is because of like a big lack in skill and a big lack in good equipment. So it has its charm, but I'm much more happier with what I'm doing right now. It's also what I really want to do, not just what happens in the studio with the machines and me. It's also a very non-playing around time when I'm in the studio. I sit down and do what I want to do. It's very target-oriented. Do you still see sort of room to grow as a producer, though? Are there, oh, are yes. Still oh, yes. I thought before, oh, no. But now, having really spent so much time with one album, I realized, oh, man, if I could go back, I would have done other stuff from the beginning of the producing process. I would do it differently. <laughs> yep, that's how it is. You say you want to continue sort of to grow with your studio craft yeah. in the live sphere and with your recorded material, you want to reach sort of newer audiences, bigger audience. No, actually everyone, not just young people. Or I hear from many people, the kids are just silent in the car if a PK CD is running or something. <laughs> so to, I call it techno for people from 8 to 88 out of this clientelism, you know, that it's just for those who know. Mm -hmm. I found this always a little bit. That keeps it small, guys. That keeps it small. And... This is just something what is attractive to you when you're young, when you realize that your powers are not endless and you maybe have children, then you start thinking differently about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would imagine that having a kid probably influences like all aspects of your career. Yeah. That probably changes your whole outlook yeah, on everything. The life. It changes the life. <laughs> and so I was always thinking that, you know, now I'm 38, I was thinking all the years before that I'm too late to become a dad, should have done it earlier, but now realize it fits perfectly, you know. The album was ready in February and the child was born in April, so everything is very fitting into my life. Are there other ways in which you kind of see yourself growing as an artist, sort of beyond the ways that we've talked about? Is there still... Are there still these sort of hurdles you would like to you would like to get over these sort of mountains you would like to climb? Yeah, now at the moment, no hurdles in sight, to be honest. Um, before signing the contract, there it felt like a little bit like a last step of something, but now I realize just somehow the first step of something. We were also a long time thinking: should we do it or should we not? So, but now after I've done it, there is also no sense in thinking what could be regretful to it no now trying to start again with the label i'm on to as trustfully as i can it's i think three fixed and two options for i think it's supposed to be within 12 years then then i'm 50 that would be a good end <laughs> good time to retire yeah I guess. yeah yeah i need to go to my boat <laughs> no i don't have one but metaphorically <laughs> <laughs> sure you are a, a massive football fan yeah I'm curious if this influences your career at all. Oh, yes, it did. Just listen to Guten Tag, what came out in 2012 at the end of the year after the Bayern have lost so cruelly against Chelsea in their home stadium, the final. The new album is out after the Bayern won the Champions League the next year and over next year we became the world champions. 
So now ask yourself if this has any influence <laughs> in the happiness and the everything what is in this music. It definitely has. There's, you know, this sort of, I don't know, cliche. Maybe this is more of a rock music thing than a techno thing. I don't know. But, you know, music is sort of antithetical to athletics or something. Or th these two worlds are, are very separate. But, I mean, I wonder, like, do you think you can really learn something uh, about how to conduct your career, about about how to... I don't know, do all of this stuff from... No, from actually the not, because they are in the very unfortunate position that with the age of 30, 32, some maybe 34, it definitely ends because the body is done for <laughs> this kind of sports. And now I'm 38, starting something completely new is a big advantage. So that's why I can understand that young players are looking out where is maybe another contract looking if the time where you can earn money with something you can do well, where you have put all your youth into be able to do it well is so short and so limited. You don't even know it's lasting you, your knee is injured and then maybe with 26 that was it. So I have understanding for that everyone is following his own agenda there. Mm -hmm. You're now, I mean, as an artist, pretty well outside of the club world, yeah. outside of the sort of underground techno world. It's also what, too late. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, no, I mean, too late. I cannot play anymore, like 4.30 in the morning. I have no power <laughs> for that. I'm good at midnight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course. Are you still at all interested in this world, in touch with this world? Uh, are you still listening to new dance music? No, I don't listen to music at all. I, I mean, I do so much music. Everything I do is music. So the rest of the life can, I'm fine that it's musicless. There's, you know, also with a child now, football, vintage cars, a lot of things I'm interested in, <laughs> politics. And um, no, no time for music to be silent. I mean, yes, I have time for music. I would maybe listen to much more music if I wouldn't do this as a profession. But because I do it as a profession for so many years, also, yeah, I feel it necessary to also keep my ears in silence for long times of the day. So when you come home from the studio or come home from a tour, especially from a big then gig, not, especially then not. Please also the taxi driver, please stop the music, the radio. <laughs> the silence is as important as the sound to hear what's inside of yourself. You know, you grew up in East Germany, Lichtenberg, Lichtenberg, East Berlin. Do you ever think, like, if you could sort of go back to you as a young boy and sort of whisper in your ear and say, "This is what I'm doing now." Would you believe it? I mean, was it this... would be bad because then the little guy would do shit because he knows the big stardom is coming to him. <laughs> you know, that's why you should never know anything from the future. And also, if I don't know, my parents would have gave me like a big money here. So please don't stress us. Here's money. Buy what you want. When I was like maybe 18 or something. And also I would have maybe not done it. So it was always what I want to become. And I had to make a life out of it. So you think maybe... That upbringing, like that personal history kind of gave you a little bit of a push. It, it gave you a little bit of a fire. I mean, when you have no fire under the S, what are people tending to do? Sitting down, <laughs> drinking maybe coffee, chilling, talking to friends. So there's no life made to be made out of that. Side, the world will 
up in mind, not the one for me. Don't 